Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast from Faith Point Church, Auckland, New Zealand. We hope you will encounter God afresh in this week's teaching segment. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, then you can visit us at www.faithpoint.org.nz. And now for today's message. Well, this morning, um, I'd like to be able to pick up uh, a number of things. Um, who likes going fishing? About half of us. Who actually likes catching fish? The same amount of people. Who actually likes gutting and filleting and <laughs> all th- three or four of us? Thing is, a lot of fish are getting caught in the church around the world. But it comes back to discipleship. And uh, discipleship is like catching the fish. That's one thing. That's the easy bit. The hard thing is actually filleting and cleaning the fish. You know, I love fishing. I get to go out occasionally, not as often as I would like. Um, The reality is when you get home, you generally have to clean the fish as it goes rotten. Um, It takes a little bit of effort. There's a bit of smell. There's a lot of blood and guts sometimes. Uh, You can wash it down, hose it down. And even your fingers after a day or two sometimes still have the aroma of the, the last expedition. But fishing takes expertise. You know, we can do it casually, we can do it intentionally. You know, a lot of the fishermen, fisher persons in the country are very casual about what they do. But people starting to train themselves more intentionally as fishing gets harder, obviously, to get the reward. And um, you've got to try different things, you know. And this morning I want to talk a little bit about fishing. Um, and I want to be able to splice in some of the key thoughts that have been taught from this pulpit over the uh, last number of months. Just to be able to um, get the, um, the threads and just be able to um, splice them in, to be able to fuse them all in to what the Spirit of God is saying. Because fishing is important. We've got to disciple people well. This church is about discipling not just this church, but the nations. That's why we're doing seminars um, around the world, um, to be able to help improve um, the, the fishing quota, as it, as it were, in, in the kingdom. Another way of actually looking at fishing isn't necessarily you know, obviously with a rod, line, and sinker. It's actually through the metaphors of the Bible. And one of the clearest expressions of um, discipleship is actually out of the book of Nehemiah. And I've uh, mentioned a few times as I preach through the year, a um, little bit of the aspects of uh, discipleship literally from the book of Nehemiah because it's about um, a person on a mission, Nehemiah, and he was intentional about what he did. And he went to a rundown, ruined city with a purpose, because God had actually spoken to him about going somewhere and doing something. And as we look, about the, look at the gates of Nehemiah, we see different attributes of what God was wanting to do in and through the church, and different responsibilities. And so this morning, the fish gate is all about living a life of mission. Fish gate is living a life of mission. And one of the values of this church, and if you've... Uh, uh, been in the church, you'll be able to pick up because we've been going through some of these values. Um, we've gone through them once and we'll probably pick up and reiterate some of the, the key points um, if we possibly can. But one of the key things that we want to do as a church is look at the, the values repeatedly. And um, you'll see up on the screen here, we seek to live a life of mission here, there, and everywhere. We want to be a church on mission here, there, I guess that's uh, locally, 
and everywhere. Wherever we're at, we want to be intentional about reaching the community. That's the mission of this church, and I dare say the mission of the church globally. It's who we're called to be. Um, I think uh, uh, the Titanic movie was uh, not here, there, everywhere. It was, uh, what's the theme song? Um, they talked about, uh, you know, they had Kate on the, on the pulpit. Uh, she was actually at the, uh, the pulpit. It's actually the, the, the sharpening of the boat. She was up there. Uh, it was like, you're not here, there, everywhere. But um, she was singing a song about um, near, far. near far, wherever you are, you know. Um, that's a romantic song. Um, I guess the greatest... <laughs> I'm not, not going to sing it. <laughs> I tell you what, if you bolt those doors, um, I'll sing it. <laughs> no. I tell you what, I, I couldn't carry it. You know, I sound like a cat in a, uh, a, in a sack with a tail being bitten. D- don't, don't go down that track. But the thing is, you know, with um, even that Titanic, Titanic song, um, you know, there was, a, there was a thought that came through, but there was a romantic situation. The greatest romance story is Jesus Christ. God sending his only son to this planet for a purpose. He was on a mission. And that's the greatest love story. You know, we've been caught up as the wooing of the Holy Spirit has caught us up in this thing way beyond ourselves. But the thing is, as we're looking at the values of our church, we're also called to be spiritual um, contributors, not just consumers. Pastor Viv alluded to it a little bit during the worship. You know, um, we've got to give of ourselves. You know, nature is crying out in worship all the time. The sun, the moon, the stars, the waves, they all echo something. You know, God could have put a tape recorder or a CD in to hear worship. But what he's looking at is a humanity to rise up on their own two legs and to worship him. We're supposed to be contributors to the church. And quite often we just sit back. And because people have been disempowered, they've been shoved in pews, they haven't been engaged in what they should be doing as individuals, as Christians. And we have to contribute. And as we look at the story of Nehemiah, what we actually see is a whole bunch of um, people responding to the call of God. They weren't um, sitting back. They were wanting to contribute to what God was doing. As those walls went up around the city, they grabbed hold of their tools, they grabbed hold of rocks and rubble and all sorts of things, and together the walls went up really, really rapidly. They just didn't sit back, you know, and... um, you know, just see what was going on and make, you know, comments. Um, they wanted to add to what God was doing. You know, we've got to be contributors, uh, not just consumers. Um, we've got a lazy church and, you know, it's, it's easy just to rock up. We've got to roll our sleeves up and get, get involved with what God is doing. And then the true talents of who you are starts to emerge. You know, all the musicians, you know, that's really obvious. You know, the kids' ministries, what, the, the, these ministries arise. And so we've got to be contributors, not consumers. And so as we look at the gates um, through discipleship, we see there's an there's a unfolding revelation of who God is through us. But what we have to do is see those gates as a, as a picture. And we hear about the ear gate and the eye gate. Um, as Christians, we've got to uh, listen to the voice of the Spirit. We've got to be careful what we don't listen to. But we also have to look at what the right things we should be looking at. And we see um, the vision gate of the, um, the church. They had a, um, a thing called a valley gate in Nehemiah's wall. That was one of the gates. This uh, valley gate wasn't down in the pits. It was actually elevated really high so people actually had a vision. God wants to give the church vision. He wants to give you and me vision. 
There was also the Dungate, uh, just as a quick recap. The Dungate talked about getting the rubbish and the refuge um, out of our life. Uh, it's an ongoing process. Every, every day we take rubbish to our rubbish tip, well, not our, our rubbish tip, we take it to our rubbish can at home, don't we? whether it's compost or rubbish. And then once a week, hopefully if the council comes by, we can get rid of it all. Um, and it's the same with our Christian life. We, we've got to constantly get rid of the rubbish in our life. And then last time I shared, we talked about this next gate, which was essentially um, the, the front leading edge of the city of Jerusalem. Because all the way around Jerusalem, there was a whole lot of uh, terrain that was really, really steep. And there was only one leading edge, the front edge, where they could actually expand. It was the most pivotal part of the whole city of Jerusalem because it literally was on the leading edge of the city. And that's where they had the frontal attacks from the raiding armies that actually came. And right in the, the middle of this gate, they had the old gate. The old gate talked about um, Jesus, um, the, the connecting of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was through that gate that they led him to Calvary where they crucified him. And so that was part of the old and the new connecting. But right in the middle of this gate, there was this room for expansion. And the church has been expanding year after year, generation after generation. Why? Because people have been fishing. They've been out fishing. They've been extending the kingdom of God. Um, sometimes it has been really, really easy. Sometimes, most times, it probably hasn't been as easy as we thought it would be. But people have got in the boat and they've gone out and we've seen a harvest of souls that have come in. Um, and it's exciting, you know, if you lead someone to the Lord, it's probably the most satisfying thing you can actually do. You know, getting married is neat. That's fun. Having kids is neat. But I tell you what, as soon as you lead someone to the Lord, there's an incredibly deep, deep, deep satisfaction. You know, who's actually led someone to the Lord? You know, probably good 70% of us. Um, let's stir up that. Invite people, you know, into the kingdom. Get them involved. Well, this fish gate was right in the middle of this uh, wall here. Right on the leading edge is this fish gate. And so this morning I want to be able to um, unpack some of the revelation about what the fish gate was. And as we do that, if you can just um, open up your Bible into the book of Matthew, the 13th chapter. And Jesus told a parable. It was very clear. Um, Matthew 13, verse um, 47 through to 51, it says... Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. And when the net was full, they dragged it on shore. They sat down and they sorted out the good fish into crates and they threw the bad ones away. And this is what it will be like at the end of the world. The angels will come and they will separate the wicked people and the, from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said, do you understand these things? Quite a clear picture, obviously a metaphor of fish, fishing, but they got all these fish and there were good fish and there were bad fish. You know, one of the greatest lies in the world today, and it's getting louder and louder and heralded more often, is that there's not going to be eternal damnation. You know, if God is a loving God, he won't separate people from himself. He won't send people to hell. Well, when you read these scriptures, quite clearly, there's going to be a separation of righteous people from the unrighteous people. You know, God is giving mankind a choice to choose for him. He doesn't want them to go to the other place. You know, it's a free will. But the thing is, if they don't follow um, the ways of God, they're going to be separated from him. And it's not going to be a place of slave labor or anything. It's, it talks about um, separation from God, a fiery furnace. You know, it's in the Bible. It's in the book, you know. And so 
these lies are starting to come into the church today. And I've heard um, several conversations lately where people are trying to dilute what the Word of God says like this. You know, God is a loving God. He'll never do that. Well, the Bible tells us he will. You know, it's very clear. You, it's not rocket science. It's like black and white there. And so we see this fishing story being um, expressed. You know, the first thing that Jesus did with, um, with Peter was to send him out with uh, two by two people. There were 12 went out. There were 72 people went out. And so this man who was a commercial fisherman, he got caught up in something greater again. The Spirit of God was obviously... Um, on his life, Jesus discerned something and he said, come with me. I've got something far better than literally fishing for fish. You're going to be fishing for men. That was a change point for Peter's life. He went into his destiny because he made that choice of following the Lord. And that's the thing we have to do as Christians, or even if we're not Christians, as soon as you become one, you make the choice of following Jesus. Obviously, um, pivotal times, your life will change. And so we see this story, this analogy of... Um, fishing start to emerge quite clearly. Um, it's the greatest thing we can ever do was to get on board with Jesus. Uh, start to go fishing. You know, this fish gate was all about reaching the lost. Intentional reaching of humanity. Fish in the Bible always talks about souls. Souls, 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 souls. Um, and we're called to be fishers of men. And so what we have to do is be intentional. You know, fishermen just didn't stay at home um, playing cards or anything. They had to get out in all sorts of weather to do what they had to do. Uh, sometimes it's a pleasant day, sometimes it's not a pleasant day. They have got to be intentional. They've got to be selective on where they go. But the interesting thing about this word, um, the fish gate, it wasn't just called the fish gate. It was also called the Damascus, Damascus gate. You know, you think, well, okay, it's got another name. Well, what does that Damascus gate mean? Where did the Apostle Paul get saved? On the road to Damascus. You know, so interesting, when you hear things like that, it actually means something. So this man, Paul, or Saul as he was in those days, he was beating up on the church. He was killing people. He, was thought, he, he thought he was doing the right thing, shafting Christians and all that. But then he had a whole different revelation. It was on this road to Damascus. You know, it was there that he found uh, true life. He found hope and he found truth. It was like the aha uh -huh, thing went on in his life. And he became one of the most uh, influential people in the whole Bible, uh, reaching out to the unknown world. Uh, to the, uh, and it went beyond just Jerusalem. You know, he stirred something up, just not in word, but indeed he was the first missionary going off, intentionally taking the, the word of God from here, there, to everywhere. The Damascus Gate was actually, you see actually Jerusalem, and you see this dotted line going squiggly all the way through. It went through Judea and into Samaria, but Damascus is right at the top where that big red blob is. But we see this expanding route of where the gospel was going to. It was like you throw a rock in the pool, you see the ripples go everywhere. The gospel literally went out that road. And so Damascus, uh, we're talking about Samaria, the half-caste, the word of God was starting to go out further and further. But if you were to take that road further, 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 up the top there, that would actually go to Babylon. It was the main trade route to Babylon. And so when we talk about reaching the lost, we actually talk about reaching the world. And so, you know, they could have gone fishing in Jerusalem. I don't think there was a fish pond there. They probably would have... Uh, struggled. They would have had to go to a, a river or they would have had to go to Galilee or somewhere to go fishing. They had to go further away. And sometimes we've got to go further than our own front door to reach the lost. Uh, it's a work in progress. Babylon will always speak about the world. That's where the unsa unsaved people are. Uh, as a church, 
we have to be intentional about what go, goes on. Uh, it's not going to be easy. You know, the first century church, they got caught up in all sorts of persecution. And many people were crucified for their faith, stone whipped. Uh, it wasn't nice for them. Uh, but I'll tell you what, in the first century, so much happened for the church. So many people gave the heart to the Lord. There was an intentional reaching out to the lost. And people got converted in the, um, the whole process of persecution. And what actually happened, you'll see the next slide, I think there's a picture of a fish. And quite often, people would rock up to people and they didn't know whether they were Christians. You know, it's not, the, the, the halo was turned off. I don't know what's happening. But what actually happened in persecution, they'd actually, on their foot, they would actually write in the sand a picture of the fish. And so with, they would think, aha, I know. And they just didn't leave that and walk away with their footprints because if spies or anything were there, they could actually just wipe that out. So people would know, oh, you're part of the house of faith. Amongst all the stuff that was going on, there was an intentionality. But bad things happen in the world. We know that. But I tell you what, out of bad things, good things will always happen. Um, Around about four years ago, I think it was, five years ago, I was in Myanmar, and it was just after, um, actually right at the time they were actually changing the political situation, and Westerners could go in a little bit more freely. We were there when it all happened. Uh, I've been in, uh, I think, three times to Myanmar now, and we were looking at putting leadership seminars up in uh, Mandalay. Most people could go to Yangon. This is just after the tidal wave had wasted everything, and we were looking at getting resourcing in to do leadership seminars in uh, Mandalay City, which was the old king's capital. Uh, and it's all handmade. This canal was actually all made out of um, manual labour, and this was the part of the old king's palace coming through here. And so we went there, and we had them the morning with these city leaders, and they were so keen to get some help because no one had been in for 25 years to be able to provide any Christian support. The whole city had been cut off. You know, politically it was it was a, like a no-go area. And we were there, and these guys were so hungry, saying, "Can you come? Can you come?" and what actually happened, we were planning to have um, Bill Hybels from Willow Creek and have uh, Nicky Gumble from Holly Brompton to come in and with a global summit to do training there. And these guys were just so hungry. Uh, they were desperate for any truth. But we did the formal sort of planning in the morning and I said to a couple of the local pastors, hey, can you show us around Mandalay um, this afternoon? We've done all the business stuff. Let's go and see your city. And so what they did is they took us right up the top of this hill there and on the top of the hill there was a big um, Buddhist pagoda and we went up there and we were looking out over the, over the whole uh, panorama of Mandalay and I said to this pastor, I said, Pastor Tutu tell me your story and he said, oh, do you really want to know and I said, I'd love to know your story and he said, well um, it's not a good story but it's, a, it's my story. And what had actually happened um, the Korean missionaries had come to Mandalay um, a number of years ago, and they'd actually started one or two churches. And they were um, physically built churches, uh, and uh, then persecution came, and they basically said, here are the keys, we're going back to Korea, you guys will have to continue the church by yourself. And so there's been a big void for training for these people. And then on this journey, persecution was also taking place in China. And so these guys were running from their lives from China. They went across the border. They went into the northern jungles of uh, Myanmar or Burma. And they came out on the middle of the road one night. And they were walking down the road. And uh, this car stopped. And because this is like miles from nowhere. And people aren't out miles from nowhere. So they got into this car. And the conversation was saying, we need help. Can you please take us to the Korean embassy? OK. You know, with language being a barrier. 
And what actually happened, in the middle of the night, this car came into this compound where this Korean church was. And these guys got out, it was like one o'clock in the morning, and um, no, it's not the Korean embassy, it's a Korean church. Oh, okay, we'll try and go to the embassy tomorrow. Come on in. Well, 5.30 in the morning, all these troops will t- turn up, you know, all the uh, automatic weaponry and everything. And they arrested this pastor. And they said, this isn't the Korean embassy. And he said, I know it's not, it's a Korean church. And you said, you said to the people it was a Korean embassy. He said, no, it's a Korean church. And so he was being set up by this driver for money. And so, long story short, he got arrested and he got put into a prison. And so we were on the top of this hill and we were literally looking down over Mandalay and all the city and we could see this prison. And it was designed for around about 3,000 people, but there was about 12,000 people living in the prison. And so this guy as a pastor is literally locked, going through the barriers into the prison and he was there and all the screening was going on. And they said to him, what is your job? What is your vocation? And he said, oh, I'm a Christian pastor. Oh, really? Oh, really? Oh, really? You know, we've been praying that God would send us a Christian pastor. Yeah. <laughs> and so for three years, he preached. And over three and a half, four thousand 4,000 people gave the heart to the Lord. This prison had about 12,000 people all squeezed in. And I stood on this hill with Pastor Tutu, and I, and I looked down, and I said, how did you feel you know, when they put you in prison? And he said, it's the best thing that ever happened to my life because I could see what happened. All these people got saved. They were desperate. They were hungry. Um, I can go in any time now to the warden, to the prison, at any stage, or any Christian pastor can now go into that prison and share their faith. I tell you what, um, that was good fishing ground. Um, persecution will always happen. This planet is going through tension. We know the Bible says in the end there will become rumours of wars and pestilence and disease and famine. There will be earthquakes and we're seeing more and more of that take place. Um, it's not just a figment of our imagination. It's happening more and more. We talk about global warming. It's all part of the end time tension, the birthing pain of what God is doing. But as I read the book, I see there's going to be a harvest of souls at the end times like never in church history. And the church has to wake up to understand we have to be intentional about what we're called to do. We talk about a fire coming and hitting the church and burning and all the rubbish getting purged away. That will happen. That's only one metaphor. There's a wave of souls coming into the kingdom with this end time revival that God is actually uh, birthing. And we start to see earthquakes in Christchurch and think, oh, what's happening, Lord? You know? Big earthquake off um, East Coast last week, you know, major one, you know, and and the tremors still go on. Tidal waves taking place, unusual things. God is doing something, you know. Let's just wake our eyes up. Well, do you wake your eyes up? You wake your mind up. You open your eyes, don't you? And see what God is doing. Yeah, God is trying to capture the attention of the church. We've got to be prepared for the harvest of souls that's actually coming. We can talk fishing, we can talk all about our successful uh, exploits, and probably the most successful exploits I've ever had fishing was when I was a young chap, maybe nine, with my brother, and we went up to Matapuri Bay, and uh, we uh, had a 12-foot clinker dinky, clinker dinghy, and um, a dinky. <laughs> I don't know what a dinky is. <laughs> Let your imagination run wild. <laughs> we had a 12-foot clinker dinghy. That's an open boat. And, and it was so rough, we couldn't go 
beyond, obviously, um, the headlands, because it was just, we would have got capsized. And so what we did is we put the net um, under the headland on the north side there. And this was just as the sun was going down, and we got up first thing the next morning. And we struggled and struggled and struggled, and we pulled this net in, slowly, inch by inch by inch. And this dinghy had this net piled, not just in the, in the boat, it was actually stacked up um, in the middle. And we got this boat to the shore. I don't know how we did it because it was only around about um, maybe 70 mils of freeboard and it was touch and go. Fortunately, it was a um, lot of um, wood and wood doesn't normally sink too much, but it was, we got to the shore. And do you know what? We got over 22 and a half, well, two, 20, I say 22 and a half varieties of fish. The half one was a crayfish that was half ch chomped up by something. But we spent literally the whole day cleaning out kawaii, kingfish, snapper, you, you name it, we had it there. And people were coming along the beach with chilli bins and buckets and sacks, just clearing out what we could actually have. Best fishing time ever. This was before the permits and all that were out there. And even if we had that, I don't know what we would have done. But that was like deep, deep satisfaction. You know, 22 and a half variety of fish. We didn't even count the fish because there was just too many. Um, but I think the church is going to see more than just 22 and a half varieties of fish come into it. We're going to see the nations of the world flock to the kingdom. You know, there's over 330 and odd nations in the world, geographic nations in the world today. We're seeing the ethnicity of humanity come to us. We talk about the Jerusalem gate or the, the fish gate and, and Damascus gate. That wasn't a one-way street to those nations. The nations of the world were coming to Jerusalem. And we're finding as we look into um, our society, we're having the nations of the world come to us. You know, we don't have to be missionaries, or we, we do have to be missionaries, but, and go to the nations of the world because literally they are coming to us. And we just have to have our eyes open to the fact that God is bringing them to us. How do we embrace those people as they turn up on our doorstep? I hope willingly. You know, we may not know them that well, but I tell you what, as you get to know the different ethnicities, you, you appreciate their culture and their food, you know, and, and what they like. And there's a value in that. There's a richness in which they come. Yes, it might clog up our motorway systems more, but let's just value what God is doing. He's bringing the nations to us for a purpose. And as a church, because this is an apostolic church, we have to prepare the nets for the harvest. One of the things of an apostolic church is this mandate of restoration. An apostolic ministry, this word katastasio, um, in Greek talks about mending, repairing, stitching together, bringing together, cleaning up. There was a preparation um, going on. Any true apostolic house will have this as an ongoing process of repairing, drawing together, cleaning up. You know, there's a lot of stuff in people's lives that have been swept under the carpet or pushed under the bed or hidden somehow. I tell you what, God is coming back for a perfect church and these things that are being hidden are going to have to come out into the open. And it's not nice when, you know, wives can get into your face sometimes and say, well, that's not right and they'll get into your, into your zone, you know, and try and sort yourself out. We know what it's like, hey guys. But then the Holy Spirit will come, hey, how about being more punctual, you know, how about being more intentional, how about being more, you know, or we talk about grace this morning. There's things that people will challenge us and champion us to do. It's not easy being disciplined, but I tell you what, as a dad, if you don't discipline your children, kids go wild. And so, yeah, we've got to be intentional about restoring. But the thing is, when they did Nehemiah's wall, 
there was a restoration. All those blocks were on the ground were just rubble. And what they did, Nehemiah, what he did, he challenged the people and together the walls were put into place. And they had the outside ones and the inside ones where the broken rocks were put and there was an intentional rebuilding, a restoration. This church carries a mandate of restoration. And I believe that happens prophetically as we speak into the, into like Pastor James is in uh, Wellington this morning. Uh, there's going to be a word that goes out. It's part of the restoration process, pulling people together. Pastor James is going to Nepal in March to do a seminar um, there. I'm going to be doing three seminars that same week in Indonesia. Why? Because these leaders are coming in because they're desperate for help. And it's not going just to have a gig to go somewhere. The intentionality is to go to bring something of restoring the kingdom of God, bringing the nets together, drawing them together to help these people be restored for the future. It's a work in progress. It's not easy. If we go fishing, we've got to be intentional. Um, we can go to the wharf and, you know, go sprat fishing. You know, it's a start somewhere. And that's good fun. But if you go trout fishing, it takes a different skill set than just going to the local wharf. You know, it's fly fishing. And you've got to know how to cast the... I've never done trout fishing because um, I once, but all the thing got caught in the willow tree behind me and I got really frustrated. But you've, it, it takes a skill set or even salmon fishing to be able to cast properly, to drop the lure, plump you know, in front of the, the fish. It's a skill set. Um, you can go snapper fishing, you know, and that's getting harder and harder at times. But, you know, that takes a different, different rig, a different set of patience. We go fishing for kawai or, we, or game fish. You know, that's a whole different gearing up again. What about flounder? You know, you generally can't catch them on a, on a hook. You've actually got to um, put a flounder net out. Once I actually realised you could actually stand on the flounder and you reach down and you can get them. We go to the Cook's Beach for holidays and the Poorangi Estuary and we used to put a net up the top end and, and the tide would go down and so you get out, get out of the boat to actually get to where you need to go and we literally were wading through water and you could stand on the fish and you could actually reach down and throw them in the boat. Our young girls, was, when they grew up, got a bit excited when these fish were being you know, thrown back at them. And sometimes these fish would be camouflaged and you couldn't actually see them, but you could sense where they are. Then you go up and you can stand on them, throw them in the boat. And these, these flounder are actually really smart because if they know you're there, they will, um, they will stop and they'll turn around and they'll make a, a flounder dust. Anyone familiar with this? Probably some of us, um, real fishermen. Um, but what actually happens, the flounder actually turns around as a U-turn and goes up in the dust to hide in the dust. And I tell you what, um, what you do, you stand at the head of the trail where they've just turned around like that with your feet spayed apart and these fish come straight back and they go chunk and they can't turn around. You've got to reach down, pick them up and throw them in the boat. Really easy to do. But having said that, what I'm thinking, we've had a whole lot of people being like flounder out there and they've been stepped on and they've been scared and they've turned around and they've gone away, but they've turned around and somehow they're getting attracted back to the church, coming back to the church. And we have to, we may not necessarily have to have our feet splayed open, open up our hearts, open up our arms to embrace these ones. I was working with a church in um, Wellington, 17 prostitutes got saved in one week. Sad thing, two weeks later, no more 17 prostitutes because the church couldn't embrace them. You know, we've got to be serious about what we do. You know, Pete and uh, got engaged. 
you know. Maybe it was the, Sharon was the flying fish into the arms of this young man. <laughs> into the boat. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, there's, there's a different skill set. Um, you know, you know, when you get married or get, get engaged, you know, like there's like well, these wish lists that these partners have, you know, got to cook, got to clean, um, house trained, uh, ironing. Peter can do all, all this now. Yeah, well qualified. Yeah, seriously, he can iron, he can clean, he can cook. Um, he's, a, he's a good man. Um, we've got to be intentional about catching our fish. Um, we go fishing, we put a burly trail out. You know, a burly trail is where you chop up all the guts and gizzards and stuff, and somehow the, the fish like that, and they get attracted to the fish. You know, they come to the boat, you know, and they, 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 they latch on. You know, the church has to have a good burly trail to society. This is why we've got a community um, food bank and things like that. It's just one line of sight to the church, but we can have many lines of sight. In mission today, we, think, we use a term called crummy evangelization. Crummy evangelization is used to reaching Islamic people. And it's like, um, how do you catch a bird? Very difficult, isn't it? But what they do is they, they cast breadcrumbs out and the birds start to pick. They don't come right up to you and pick it off your, your fingers or out of your hands. They go a long way away. But as you go out and do that more regularly, the bird gets familiar with what's going on and they actually get closer and closer and closer. It's called crummy evangelization. And so reaching uh, humanity, especially Islamic people, it's through friendship and relationship. It's an attractional thing. And they might be a far distance away, but tell you what, they inch closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. And I think as we look out our doors and people drive up and down and run around these playgrounds and all sorts of things, maybe there's a burly trail out there. There's a crumb trail out there where people are inching closer and closer and closer, not to a church, but to the cross of Jesus Christ, coming into the arms of his love. I tell you what, friends, the, the best days are ahead of us. Um, it's exciting. You know, I, I live, you know, like when I got saved, I, I thought the end times was probably the best time to live. And I've seen a glimpse of that, but it's getting better and better, um, more intentional. We were at Cook's Beach in July for a family holiday, and um, my daughter and her fiancé decided to go fishing after the storms. And so we did. We put the dinghy on the trailer. We went down to the beach. Um, and um, Cameron, the fiancé, had bought this brand-new four-wheel four drive, you know, and he sort of, oh, I can put a four-wheel drive onto the beach. And he shot down to the beach, and the tide was um, fairly far out, and then he spun around. And we were probably um, the width of the hall away from the water, and we got out and we lifted the dinghy off the, um, off the trailer. And all of a sudden, this massive great wo uh, rogue wave came in, and it just didn't come up to the tyres. It didn't come up to the sill of the car. It actually came into the car right up over the gear stick. And it's like, what was happening here? You know, like, it was calm, it was still. And then we had a surge of waves. We had about five or six solid waves that came in, repeated this, right up into the, you know, the cab and everything. Um, fortunately, it was insured. But the Lord started to speak to me, and he said, this was a rogue wave. But a wave is going to hit my church, and it's going to engulf people when they least expect it. It's going to impact and get people caught up. Um, and it's like, whoa. But 
you never prepare for a rogue wave. You hear about them. You know, it's a tidal wave. You hear about the, the alarm systems come. Um, but there's a wave coming into the church. There's a, there's a you know, we talk about the, the, the burning wave coming and going through the forest and all that. Uh, there's a wave going to come. And we've got to prepare our church, um, the church, intentionally. This is a church going to be a mission. Yeah, here, there, and everywhere, gearing up. There's wave upon wave that's hit the church through the years. We look at people like George Whitfield. George Whitfield was possibly the greatest um, evangelistic a voice through the Great Awakening. Um, he was uh, based in uh, the UK, but he couldn't be based just in the UK. He ended up going to the uh, United States. And what he did, he started to preach, and thousands and thousands of people got saved. And people like Finney, uh, Whitfield, uh, sorry, um, you know, Spurgeon, um, Wesley's, they all said, whoa. And they got caught up because of this man's preaching. He didn't preach a complicated gospel. He preached a real, simple, distilled message. People got saved, and, and it was phenomenal. And he started to impact people, um, people like George Washington, you know, who became the president of America. This guy, Whitfield, was recognized more, more as a world leader than George Washington ever was at that time. Um, he impacted people. People like Benjamin Franklin. He was a worldly leader. He wasn't a Christian, but he hung on to the words of George Whitfield for advice. But a wave was starting to ripple in to the church globally. And then um, at the same time, John and Charles Wesley, you know, obviously the Wesleyan revival came out and we've got a lot of the hymns that have come from that. But John Wesley was a preacher and he would literally have to stand on his dad's grave because they wouldn't let him preach in the pulpit of his dad's church because he was a, a reformer. He was speaking unconventional things. He had a message that was different than the status quo. And Tens of thousands of people flocked, and tens and thousands of people got saved. And through this man's ministry, they started to put in place discipleship to train these people that were getting saved. And so when we look at the Wesleyans, we look at the Wesleyan church. They used to call them the Methodist movement. Why the Methodist? The method of discipleship. Important. Yes, it was the Wesleyan church, but they called them the Methodists. Why? Because there was a method of discipleship. George Whitfield, when he died, he said, oh, that I was like my brother's Wesley. Why? Because when I look about the whole legacy of my life, tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people got saved. Where are they now? There was no discipleship. But I look at my brother's Wesley. They discipled. They discipled well. And they've been able to retain the lost people where I failed. And there was people like Jonathan Edwards. You know, he was caught up in this as well. And what he did is he took his faith, obviously, to um, America, and people heard and they responded. But what he did, he stirred up people's lives. And they started to become intentional. They went as early missionaries. They're, as the colonization was taking place in the world, they went intentionally as missionaries. And what actually happened, they went with an intent to start new churches. The best form of evangelization is actually church planting. That's how you get people and you disciple people. I'll say that again because it's so important. The best form of evangelization is always going to be church planting. And then uh, what he also did is start training institutions, Bible colleges, so pastors and leaders could be trained up. There was an intentionality about taking discipleship to a new level. And these waves went out generation after generation. And then we jump forward to a guy called um, Smith Wigglesworth. Um, he was a Welshman. And he was obviously a revivalist. He was an evangelist. Um, hundreds of thousands of people got touched and influenced through his ministry. But he was a plumber. 
an ordinary Joe Bloggs. He went home um, to his wife uh, to, for, to have lunch one day because he was, he was working and he thought, I'll go home for lunch. And his wife was stone dead on the uh, kitchen floor. And he came in and said, Woman, in the name of Jesus, rise up to life again. And so she did. And she said, Willsworth, how dare you bring me back to life? I was enjoying it so much in heaven. <laughs> Literally, that's what happened. And they had um, some time together on earth. I think it was about another 17 or 18 years of married life before she died, and that, that was the end of her uh, time on earth. But the thing is, there was a boldness and a brashness about this guy, and he got things done. He was on the leading edge of the Pentecostal church out of Welsh Revival, you know, and he wouldn't take the status quo. He was a reformer, and he moved because God spoke to him, go here, go there, and as he went, doors opened. People got saved. Miracles happened. Uh, the legacy is like church history now. And then we jump forward to people like uh, Catherine... Um, Coleman, you know, a little bit later than uh, like uh, in the 60s, 70s, she was still going. But whole arenas were filled with people wanting to hear the gospel. And people came and they had thousands and thousands of people respond to the name of Jesus. People that came in wheelchairs and crutches, you know, there was like hundreds of wheelchairs just left in the arenas, crutches. Um, John G. Lake happened the same thing through the African revival. Um, then the guy called Billy Graham. You know, he was an evangelist. He was intentional about reaching the lost. And we know the history now. These rallies and people came. Well, it's a little bit ancient history now because, you know, that's, you know, 30, 40 odd years ago. But I tell you what, there's a wave coming. It's a wave that none of us can predict how big it's going to be. But I tell you what, if Jesus says, come follow me, it's for a reason. And it's not to sit in a seat and occupy it and enjoy church and sing Kambaya, you know. You can do, but you're going to be letting yourself down. We've got to be intentional about reaching the lost. We only get one crack at this life. We've got family, we've got neighbours that are dying and going to hell. They need to hear a really, really simple expression of this word. You know, Sometimes we don't have to preach it, we can just love people into the kingdom. And I think there's a whole new sense of urgency coming on to the church again. People have led people to the Lord, and that's been good. But the fish have got through the net. Why? Because of ineffective, inappropriate discipleship. And one of the values of this church is to bring discipleship back into the house so we can actually capture the fish, gut, fill it, and process the fish properly. The key thing is we had revivalists come, and God started to speak to individuals, whether it was a Wigglesworth or a Whitfield or a Wesley. Maybe he's speaking to you. You might be brown. You might be a Hawkins, you might be a Richardson, yay, you know, an orange, you know. What's God going to be speaking to you? Where's he challenging you to go? Where's he telling you to cast your net? You know, Peter, oh, I've done that. I'm a commercial fisherman. Don't tell me how to catch fish. Go suck eggs yourself. No, you know, Jesus was saying, no, 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 no. I want you to cast the fish over there. Oh, okay, God. Okay, God. I'm tired. I'll do it for you. And I tell you what, the biggest harvest that man had ever seen. There's a harvest in this world today that is massive. And we have to be diligent and we have to be responsive. We can't afford to miss the moment or the hour. You know, um, fishing's always fun. Cleaning up afterwards is a bit difficult. But I tell you what, there's an urgency in the world today to win the lost for him.